Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Scott Tong. In the final fight scene in the 2017 Chinese action film Wolf Warrior II, the evil American is about to finish off our Asian hero until the American says this. Ah, people like you will always be doing people like me. Get used to it. Cue the angry Chinese superstar. He jumps up, tosses an expletive, and kills off the white bad guy. Is this a metaphor for a new, aggressive China? We talk about China's wolf-warrior diplomacy in the future of U.S.-China relations. That's next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Scott Tong. It is Earth Day. President Biden is hosting a virtual leaders' summit on climate change today, and in attendance is Chinese President Xi Jinping, who, along with President Biden, made a new climate change commitment. This is a bright spot in a darkening relationship between the U.S. and China. The world's two largest economies dispute the origins of the coronavirus, alleged genocide against minority Muslims in western China, the fate of Taiwan. We could go on. This is all marked by an increasingly aggressive tone from Beijing, We'll discuss the roots of China's so-called wolf-warrior diplomacy, the tough guy film that coined the term wolf-warrior, and where relations go from here on climate, on human rights, peace, and security. We're joined by Yang Yang Cheng, physicist and fellow at the Paltzhide China Center at Yale Law School. She's a regular columnist on Chinese affairs and U.S.-China relations. Welcome, Yang Yang. Thank you so much for having me. And we have Peter Martin, political reporter for Bloomberg News. His forthcoming book is China's Civilian Army, The Making of Wolf Warrior Diplomacy. Hi, Peter. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, Great to have you. And Damian Ma is co-founder and executive director of Macropolo, a think tank of the Paulson Institute at the University of Chicago. Macropolo tracks the economy, the politics and technology of China. Damian, nice to have you here. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me. Great to have everyone here. So let's talk first about the film, this Wolf Warrior film, Peter Martin. 
Wolf Warrior 2 from 2017 was the highest grossing non-English film ever, right? And so much for sequels not being bad because they had great numbers. What's the main premise of this movie? It was in the Chinese domestic market. And what does it suggest about China's place in the world? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a Rambo-style movie. It's set on the Horn of Africa, um, and it features uh, a Chinese uh, captain who's got this kind of strong and purposeful role, and he's uh, fighting against some some foreign bad guys. And it, it, the, the movie came, kind of came to exemplify this uh, stepped-up role for China in the world and a, a, a new confidence. And I think um, its runaway commercial success kind of took everyone by surprise. Oh, it did. And, and you were in uh, China at the time, I believe. What did it feel like when it set these box office records? Or was this something that people on the street were talking about? Yeah, it was. I mean, I think I think it was it kind of reflected a much broader mood. Right. This mm. uh, since since Xi Jinping came into office in 2012 and just progressively since then, there's been this much greater confidence and assertiveness on on the part of Chinese statecraft and um, among the Chinese public. And I think Wolf Warrior 2 just really captured that mood. And Yang Yangcheng, uh, there is, speaking of nationalism, there's a spoonful or two of nationalist pride stirred into this movie. Now, of course, we've seen this elsewhere in other countries, say Top Gun in this country in the 1980s. Is that why you think Wolf Warrior films did so well in China? Mm. So I think uh, <laughs> I think it's always important to not overdiagnose a society's psyche by uh, the popularity of a piece of entertainment. Mm -hmm. And when I I, yeah. I did watch watch uh, Wolf Warrior too, and I can see how it might be popular because of the adrenaline rush it offers, and mm -hmm. also it's a movie where it paints the Chinese people as the heroes and Americans are the bad guys. So there is a certain revenge fantasy there as well. Mm. And as you mentioned, right, the story is cliched that certain, uh, similar stories have been told in Hollywood probably of a slightly earlier era. Mm -hmm. So I found this film profoundly disturbing in terms of its graphic violence for violence's sake, in terms of it. It's really not a film, but a video game that it has no plot, no character development. It is in extremely toxic in its masculinity and its racism in terms of how women are depicted, in terms of how African people and societies mm. are depicted. And I think when we look at this piece of entertainment critically, it needs to be placed, as you said, into a global context that these stories have been told in other forums as well. Hollywood has for decades glorified U.S. militarism and imperial aggression. And mm -hmm. so this is really comes back to a question of how we as a collective see people and societies in distant realms. And that fundamentally is about how we see ourselves, who we are and our place in society. Because well, the Hollywood, arm, uh, yes. forgive me for, for jumping in as, as you mentioned Hollywood, and we certainly know from the 80s in Top Gun, it had the blessing of the Pentagon, given how it portrayed America's place in the world back then. I imagine Wolf Warrior and Wolf Warrior 2 also had some kind of thumbs up from from higher-ups in China because of this messaging you're, you're talking about. I just want to stay with you and ask um, about your, your sense of this nationalism on the part of the Chinese people who went to watch this movie. This movie. You, you write a lot about conversations with your mother back in China. I mean, has this issue of a new emboldened China on the world stage come up? Mm. 
So I, <laughs> I, I don't necessarily think、uh, I, I talk that much with my mother in this kind of very specific.、Okay. Uh, term, I we we um I do sense a a very palpable sense of national pride that uh that is not necessarily in the sense of foreign relations, but in the sense of、mm. how domestic life has improved markedly、mm-hmm. in in China in terms of just even infrastructure. Like my mom is very very proud of the newly built subway in my in my hometown. Yeah, and、mm. and and these things. And so I think um for for Chinese people, the Chinese public, their sense of national. Pride Pride should not be seen as something particularly、uh, frightening or, or sinister. It's a very, very natural organic, organic feeling that is, on one hand, rooted in historical. Uh, trauma. A lot of these memories of past、uh, poverty and foreign aggressions are still alive, both organically as well as、uh, manufactured or engineered by patriotic edu- education and state propaganda. Well, On the other hand,、mm-hmm. Chinese people also have seen their lives improve, and and they need a place to hold their their pride, and their country is a natural vessel for that emotion. Yeah, yeah, understandable. I mean, those of us who have spent some time in China can think about people for whom life has been better statistically every single year. Right? I have a cousin who grew up in China, and that was was his story. So naturally, it perhaps is looking for a place to to express itself.、Um, so let's talk about wolf warrior and and diplomacy.、Uh, in the last year or two, this term wolf warrior has been adopted by observers of China and the Chinese media. To describe Chinese diplomats seen as increasingly aggressive, so let's take a quick listen to Chinese dip- diplomat Yang Jiechi from the recent U.S.-China summit last month in Alaska. So let me say here that in front of the Chinese side, the United States does not have the qualification to say that it wants to speak to China from a position of strength. So, Peter Martin, you have written the book on this question of wolf warrior diplomacy. Why this aggressive, pugilistic tone now from Chinese officials? You think? Well, I think it's a mix of things. So, so I, I in the book I kind of trace this、uh, the, Ch- the Chinese diplomatic corps back to 1949, and there are these periods of、um, assertiveness and stridency in Chinese diplomacy, and then there are also these incredibly impressive. Uh, kind of charm offensive type periods in the the fifties,、uh, again in the nineties,、um, and and you know leading up to the Olympics, and so it's it's varied a great deal. But、um, I would say in general, periods of assertiveness tend to come together with.、Um, A more tense、uh, and ideological political atmosphere at home,、um, where diplomats feel the need to kind of shield themselves a little bit and to show how tough they are、um, in front of back home. You mean? Yeah, exactly.、Um, and so there's that. And then I think also more recently, Xi Jinping has been very, very clear in his、uh, speeches about his expectations for the central role that China is going to play in international politics. And so, and 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 we've seen this series of events from the financial crisis through to the coronavirus pandemic, where Chinese diplomats and Chinese leaders kind of look out at the world and they say. Actually, we have a model that's working pretty well,、um, and they don't want to be told what to do. And so, there's a combination there, I think, of kind of new confidence, but also l- deep-seated insecurities, many of which have their roots in China's political system. 
We are talking about China's wolf warrior diplomacy and the future of U.S.-China relations with Peter Martin. You just heard from him, political reporter with Bloomberg News and the author of China's Civilian Army, The Making of Wolf Warrior Diplomacy. We also have Yang Yang Cheng, physicist and postdoctoral fellow at the Yale Law School and regular columnist on Chinese politics and U.S.-China relations, and Damian Ma, executive director and co-founder of Macro Polo, the think tank on modern China at the Paulson Institute at the University of Chicago. And Damien, let me go to you. The uh, the good news today, perhaps, is China-U.S. relations are not all about disputes. Right? On this Earth Day, the U.S. raised its climate change ambition, and China echoed uh, some uh, uh, hopefulness and aspiration for lowering its uh, climate emissions coming from coal. In this case of climate, is cooperation in the interest of Beijing to be a leader or to be seen as a leader? Well, I, uh, I, I do agree that there is uh, certainly a silver lining when it comes to climate change. And I think uh, the statement that came out of the John Kerry and Xi Jinping meeting over the weekend or la- uh, late last week was notably uh, a different tone than, than what you just played with, uh, with the Chinese diplomat Yang Jiechi. So, so, so I do think uh, that there is earnest, uh, you know, uh, uh, both intent and commitment uh, I, I think what's 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 interesting uh, that you see from the Chinese side is, is that you see at the very highest levels of President Xi Jinping has made some fairly strong political commitments behind uh, the, the two goals, which is, you know, uh, peaking, uh, peaking carbon by 2030 or earlier uh, and also uh, carbon neutrality by 2060. So let's be clear about what those goals mean, especially the 2060, because that, what that really means is in two generations, roughly, China is looking for a fairly significant economic transition because that's what it's going to entail to actually reach carbon neutrality. So it's it's significant. Uh, it's not just a uh, climate issue, but it really is fundamentally an economic transition issue. Yeah. So yep. and, a, so, and very briefly, do you think uh, Chinese leaders see this as being in their economic and technology interests here? Uh, absolutely. I, I I think when it comes to clean tech, China uh, has some uh, you know uh, strengths when it comes to manufacturing capability. Uh, and frankly, you know, despite all the cooperation at the policy level on, on climate change, I think you will see some competition when it comes to clean tech just because of China's current uh, dominance in the supply chain of those uh, particular technologies. Yeah, great. Well, have you noticed a more aggressive China? Does it reflect China's place in the world today? Is this something countries on the rise just do? Call us at 866-733-6786. That's 866 866- 7336786. You can also connect on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. We're talking about China's wolf warrior diplomacy and the future of U.S.-China relations. We have Yang Yangcheng, physicist and fellow at the Yale Law School's Paul Tsai China Center. She's a regular columnist on Chinese politics and U.S.-China relations. Peter Martin, political reporter at Bloomberg News. His book is China's Civilian Army, the Making of Wolf Warrior Diplomacy. 
and Damien Ma, executive director and co-founder of Macro Polo, the think tank on modern China at the Paulson Institute at the University of Chicago. And Damien, let me give you a question. Uh, Bill writes, today Xi Jinping bragged at the climate summit that China will be carbon free by 2060. That will be much too late. Your thoughts? Well, you know, uh, projections are, are, are there, there are various projections about how early or how late, uh, you know, uh, uh, the European Union has, has said 2050. So China is about 10 years on behind that. Uh, you know, it's debatable early, late. But I think uh, that the key here is that China is quite serious and politically committed to get there. Obviously, the practicality of actually getting there, meaning transforming the economy to mm -hmm. meet those goals uh, are going to be quite, you know, uh, quite tough. And the key is what they're going to do with coal. So it's it, it's actually heartening to hear that I think uh, Xi Jinping made some comments about uh, controlling coal much much uh, much uh, stronger over the next uh, you know five to ten years. So that's that's really a, a key issue to deal with because without dealing with that, there is going to be little hope of actually getting to those targets. Hmm. Uh, yeah, Yang Cheng, let's uh, turn to again this this notion of wolf warrior diplomacy and how how China sees itself, right? This term and this film, to some degree, gets to China's place in the world, something Chinese intellectuals have been debating for more than a century. You write about this. You're a physicist. You have written about um, the longer narrative of China's science and technology journey here. Is Can you talk about, I guess, this moment in China's long narrative of its place in the world and where it is now? Hmm. Well, this is... <laughs> This is this is a difficult question, and and I wasn't sure how long you want this this narrative to go. And and I I think it's also important to not mythologize the past and 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 resort to 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 a form of self orientalizing. And I, I think I, mean, I, I think guess if you just have a thought on you know is there a sense that China perhaps a century ago intellectuals saw China at a certain place in the world that is far different now. Hmm. Well, uh, I, I I think. I think I think it's important to see that Chinese intellectuals they are they are people and and they have their own emotions they are, uh, mm. and, and they have their own observations of of what the state their country is in and and what is the um, greater global environment and so for for example a, a century a century ago uh, when when China was going through drastic transformations of the collapse of the last Chinese empire and the aggressive foreign invasions as well as an excessive internal turmoil. And a lot of Chinese intellectuals were indeed very much alarmed by it and felt that, uh, as you mentioned, like modern science and technology imported mm. from the West would be a a, 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 a means for national salvation. And I, th I think that uh, has a certain resonance to the present day, uh, which is there is historical trauma and 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 that uh, and there is a a sense of almost like a need for as I mentioned like wolf warrior it's almost like a revenge fantasy so there mm -hmm. is a sense of of needing this kind of a res a restoration of China's uh, place in the world of a, a sense a sense of the need to to be recognized as a strong powerful modern nation mm -hmm. and and that sense of national pride is also coupled with a certain sense of inferiority uh, inferiority complex so the the outward aggressive projection of strength in a way also signals a certain form of insecurity or a certain um unsureness about one's identity what what does strength mean and and what should strength 
want to look like in, in this modern era, especially when there are these global problems like climate change that cannot be solved by any country or any people alone. Ah, uh, yes. Well, as, as many people have written about, right, this idea of, of projecting superiority may reflect a bit of inferiority complex underneath. And certainly scholars of China have, have seen, looked into Chinese documents and Chinese discussions of challenges facing China going forward as well. Uh, Peter Martin, I just want to ask you about this notion of, of whether this is really a uniquely Chinese thing. I'm recalling the book Ugly American back in the 50s about boorish American diplomats behaving badly around the world during during the Cold War. Is this something that sometimes just happens to countries on the rise as they're trying to reflect on what it means? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. I think it's a it's a combination of uh, of the two. Uh, Chinese, Chinese diplomats are responding to um, a set of circumstances which are quite unique to their political system. There's a there's a massive anti-corruption campaign going on right now, um, which is threatening to them in a, in a way which is quite difficult to imagine, you know, maybe a little bit with McCarthyism uh, in the US in the early days of the Cold War, mm. but but really not the same scale. But uh, I mean, I think it's true, you know, as, as countries um, as countries grow more powerful, they feel entitled to um, to play a different role on the global stage. And there's an adjustment process there in terms of how the messaging goes out for the, you know, for the country that's becoming more powerful and then for the rest of the world that has to deal with it. And so, you know, China's kind of going through that same experience, but at, at the same time, it it's all filtered through um you know, the politics of the Chinese Communist Party um, and this particular role we're at with uh, with American power at the moment as well. Yep. Well, we have a, a call in a second, but first let me invite you to join us. How do you see China's place in the world? Do you see China as a partner, an adversary? Have you done business in China where you have been asking these questions? Call us, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also connect on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We have a call from Joe in San Francisco. Hi, Joe. Hey there. How are you doing? Good, good. What's your question? Well, you know, I, I just have a comment, which is that I find the current rise in Chinese nationalism kind of inexplicable in the face of massive systemic failures of their government, of their scientific establishment, that have just thrust the world into a global pandemic that has destroyed the global economy and um, killed millions of people, quite frankly, and upended lives around the world. So it's, it's just kind of shocking to me to hear people saying that the Chinese system is working. It's not working for the Chinese, and it's not working for us. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, Peter Martin, can I put this comment, this question to, to you? Do you hear... A lot of criticism uh, from the outside of China, specifically on the origins of the coronavirus. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's absolutely true that there has been this um, real backlash against, uh, you know, globally uh, against the way that the Chinese government handled the pandemic. Mm. Um, you know, to some extent, that was also echoed domestically in China. Um, you know, I, I was I was in Beijing in the early days of the. The pandemic mm. as uh, as the virus spread and it became clear that the authorities in Wuhan hadn't done enough to um, to report what was going on at an early stage. But I think you know from a domestic perspective, most of that fell 
way when uh, it became clear how 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 poorly Western governments were dealing with it uh, as the pandemic raged across Europe and then North America uh, and and China managed to to get it under control uh, although that lots of that international criticism has remained I think domestically it's it's quietened down quite a lot well let's I'm going to read a couple uh, tweets here staying on the virus here of these moments that, Peter, you write about um, as far as Chinese wolf warrior diplomacy. If you're on Twitter, you see this, and um, we have kind of diplomatic grenades being thrown here. Uh, the foreign ministry spokesman in China last spring tweeted, it might be the U.S. Army who brought the ep- epidemic to Wuhan. I mean, that's a pretty explosive, evidence-free charge. Uh, the, a Chinese diplomat in India responded to criticism of China by saying on Twitter, quote, you speak in such a way that you look like part of the virus and you will be eradicated just like the virus. Shame on you. And the Chinese embassy in Caracas in Venezuela responded to criticism by saying, put on a mask and shut up. So, wow. I mean, wouldn't this, Peter, be the kind of thing that would hurt a diplomat's career? <laughs> yeah, uh Historically, you would you would think so, right? Um, that doesn't seem to have been the case uh, in the mm. last couple of years under under Xi Jinping. I think that um, you know it's really important when we evaluate these comments to understand that a lot of the time, you know, they, they sound hyper aggressive to us. But if you you know Zhao Lijian is the spokesman who who kind of led the charge on that um, that idea mm-hmm. of the virus coming from the U.S. Army. If you read some of his interviews, he talks about how, you know, China was being unfairly attacked and someone had to stand up for the country and that this couldn't go on any longer. And, you know, he kind of felt a duty to speak out. And, uh, you know, so from from their perspective, they're, they're standing up for China when the rest of the world is is criticizing it. But of course, to outside audiences, it sounds hyper aggressive and uh, it hasn't really done China's reputation any favors. I guess speaking of reputation, uh, Damien Ma, what is has China's response been, I guess, particularly on the economic front, right? The coronavirus first emerged from China and yet it is the largest the biggest large country that emerged from this recession earlier. I mean, does do Chinese policymakers, do Chinese leaders have a point when they say, well, kind of look at how we try to come out of this? Well, you know, China early on handled the virus the way that, that the Chinese government does best, which is shock and awe, right? They were the only major economy to impose pretty much a national lockdown, although the, the epicenter, we all know, was Wuhan, which was under lockdown for a full 76 days. Uh, and, and, and of course, much of the country uh, face, face similarly, similar uh, to that. Uh, and uh, yeah, and, and so as a result of that, uh, they were able to get it under control. And so they did come out of uh, uh, the pandemic a little bit faster. Uh, and, uh, you know, especially on the production side. And as you know, we saw the latest first quarter GDP figures, of course, it's a little bit skewed because it's measured against uh, last year, which was basically a collapse of the economy, so they grew 18 percent. Um, but but I think you know that's just short-term cyclical bounce back. So I so so I I would also say that uh, if you if you look closely at what the Chinese government's doing, they're actually still quite concerned about uh, uh, many of the vulnerabilities in the Chinese economy, especially uh, this debt problem that has becoming uh, that has become more challenging. And if you look at what they're saying, they're actually 
uh, not trying to dial up growth at, as much, and they're trying to seriously uh, address uh, this deleveraging issue, and that's really going to dominate policy for the next uh, you know uh, six months to to a year. Well, in past recessions, they have really turned on the credit in the past, yeah, and I guess had the debt hangover afterward, and they're trying to avoid this hangover a little bit this time around. Absolutely, they are a lot more serious, and and they are trying to. Part of that is, you know, they want to switch to a different uh, growth model. They've significantly watered down the GDP target. Uh, it's something that that uh, that I've been writing about. That it's uh, one of the biggest changes that I can see in terms of political incentive, because it's a signal to all levels of government that uh, it doesn't mean there won't be a target, but it just doesn't matter that much anymore. So you need to think about other ways of growth. The whole switch from quantity to quality is part of this, but uh, really they got to they got to deal with the debt issue, uh, and that's that's where they're facing right now. So I wouldn't be uh, I wouldn't be so sen- you know optimistic that the Chinese are out of the woods. But yes, they have bounced back, but they're dealing with structural issues and they're deliberately slowing down the economy uh, uh, more than we've seen in the recent past. Well, Damien, just staying with you, the Chinese also have to deal with their relationship with the United States. So let's talk a little bit about the U.S. response here. The Trump administration, of course, triggered a trade war, and tariffs are still on the books today. It blacklisted Chinese technology companies, including Huawei. It sanctioned Chinese officials over human rights abuses in the Xinjiang region in far western China. Is the Biden administration, you think, likely to keep playing hardball from the U.S. perspective? Well, I think, you know, so far uh, they have more or less held the line uh, uh, on many of the things you just mentioned. Uh, So uh, quite a bit of continuity with the Trump administration so far. Uh, And part of that is, uh, you know, uh, politics in D.C. is such that there is not much political cost to kind of keep things as they are for now. Um, But also a larger reason is, uh, uh, as you may or may not know, the administration has is, is going going through a wholesale review of their China policy across all agencies. And uh, so, 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 a, so a fully formulated China strategy is not going to come out until probably later in the summer or even later, depending on how the cross-agency process works. Uh, and, so, and so they're holding the line for now. Uh, and part of it is just, you know, the politics are such that, you know, they didn't, uh, they're probably not going to, uh, you know, lift the tariffs uh, anytime soon un, uh, until, there's, you know, until there's some other developments or negotiations there. So uh, that's kind of the status quo for now until I think we have more clarity on an overall China strategy later in the year. We are hearing more similarities and differences, it seems, from this new new administration. Uh, let's take a call from Jennifer in Oakland. Hi, Jennifer. Hi. Um, I wanted to speak to the situation on the ground among the, the local Chinese people. Um, I live there quite a while ago in the early 2000s when the economy was really starting to take a um, to, to get boosted. And I felt the, the sort of frustration, humiliation, perhaps, of the of the local Chinese people um, from the Westerners. Westerners had this this high class um, privilege among the Chinese. And it was it, yeah, it was humiliating for the Chinese. So when the Olympics occurred in 2000, um, that was, or sorry, what was that? 2004, 
Eight, yes, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, they really felt this surge of nationalism that they had come to the ma- main stage finally. And that you can feel definitely in China today. So I imagine the government is trying to gain favor among the people of China, and that must inform their foreign policy. Yep. Thanks, Jennifer. Uh, Peter Martin, let me ask you about that. You have just ended uh, a significant posting in in Beijing and ask you about the regular people there. Um, We certainly know the narrative in China is of a century or two of humiliation going back to the 19th century as far as, you know, losing many wars to Western powers and feeling abused, feeling the victim of what they call unequal treaties. On the ground, what did you sense? What did you feel while you were there? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's it's difficult, as you know, to to make generalizations about 1.4 billion people, but um, I guess that's why I'm here. So <laughs> yeah, I'll have, let's put all <laughs> I'll one a billion four on the uh, <laughs> on the couch to get their their sense. <laughs> I think you know. I think it's there's a reason that the Chinese government cho- turned to nationalism after the 1989. Tiananmen massacre when mm. it wanted to, uh, you know, find legitimate uh, new sources of legitimacy for itself, and and you know the reason is that the this idea of the country and the Chinese people having been humiliated has deep deep roots, and it's mm. not just something that the government has created. I thought Jennifer captured that really really well um, in her comments just then, and you know when you look back actually to the way that uh, the Chinese diplomatic corps was created, lots of the founding members had uh, firsthand experiences of, of humiliation at, at foreign hands. There was one diplomat who went on to be ambassador to France called Wu Jiamin, and he, he had this childhood memory of having dogs set on him by uh staff oh. in the in the french embassy in nanjing at the time and you know the, the guy went on to be ambassador in paris and mm-hmm. it's 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 you, you can't imagine how uh how strong an impact that would have on someone right you would constantly feel like you had a chip on your shoulder uh and something to prove and i think that echoes right through to today sure yeah well i mean having something to prove Have you noticed a more aggressive China these days? Does it reflect China's new place in the world today? Is this something countries on the rise just do? Call us at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. And on Twitter or Facebook, we're at KQED Forum or email forum at kqed.org. We're coming up on a break, and then we'll talk more about U.S.-China relations and a new assertive China on the global stage. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Scott Tong. We're talking about China's wolf warrior diplomacy and U.S.-China relations with Yang Yang Cheng, physicist and postdoctoral fellow at Yale Law School's Paul Tsai China Center, with Peter Martin, political reporter at Bloomberg News and the author of China's Civilian Army, and Damian Ma, executive director of Macro Polo, 
a think tank on modern China at the Paulson Institute at the University of Chicago. So let's turn to the issue of Xinjiang, uh, the region in western China. Helen asks, how does the world view the modernization of China against the backdrop of human rights violations against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang? Do they not care? Why does the U.S. merely tolerate it? Uh, Peter, have thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, that Xinjiang has become one of the, you know, hu human rights for a long time were not a front and center issue of U.S.-China relations, and that has changed dramatically yeah. uh, with the situation in Xinjiang, and it's it's something that. Uh, you know, where concern is shared across uh, both sides of the aisle um, in the US on that. Uh, policymakers find it difficult to articulate what they can do beyond uh, calling out um, uh, what's going on on the ground in Xinjiang. Um, and so that, you know, that's a real challenge, but it's going to be something we'll hear a lot more about in the coming years. Yeah, and there is a fast-moving bill um, moving through Congress on Xinjiang with additional sanctions, perhaps, on any imports coming from there. Um, let me just introduce a, a little bit of the so-called wolf warrior diplomacy on this issue of Xinjiang. The ethnic minority Muslims are known as the Uyghurs in western China. Um, several retail brands that had been sourcing cotton from there where Uyghurs are accused of being the victim of uh, forced labor, having to pick cotton against their will. Nike and H&M and have raised this issue. And then the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokeswoman tweeted in reply a 19th century photo of American slaves. So um, just kind of getting at this assertive, combative, pick your adjective tone coming from some Chinese official channels here. Um, Damien Ma, I want to ask a little bit more about Xinjiang. It is the source of of much uh, of much discussion, much debate here. Um, Xinjiang in far western China is critical in a lot of supply chains. Is that right? That is as far as its economic importance. Are we going to keep hearing about this place? Well, I think there's no doubt that we will uh, continue to hear about this particular issue, uh, given given the contentious nature of it. Uh, you are right, there is some aspect supply chains uh, in that province, um, as well in, in many other provinces, uh, things like polysilicon. Uh, obviously, you've heard... Uh, oh, polysilicon know, like, for, uh, for solar panels around the world. For solar panels, uh, there, there is some of that. But, you know, it, it's very hard to know uh, exactly, you know, uh, on the forced labor issue, it's, it's hard to know exactly, uh, you know, uh, uh, where, where it's happening, how it's happening. There's not... There's not a lot of clear evidence there, um, but you know these things have been there for a long time. In part because obviously Xinjiang's an enormous province mm. and it has a lot of sun, so it's so so it's natural to have uh, you know parts of the solar industry there, just like there is in Inner Mongolia and other parts of China. So, uh, it, but you know uh, it's undoubtedly undoubtedly that that some of these issues are gonna are gonna be uh, gonna are gonna uh, become more prominent as part of the uh, you know uh, human rights debate that's uh, gonna be uh, percolating from here to, to the European Union. Yeah, and, and we're already hearing about, I think, not just solar energy and its supply chain in Xinjiang, but there's a lot of food that comes out of there as well, and whether companies want to continue uh, purchasing from, from that part of China. Yeah, a lot but, of fruit. A lot of fruit from there. Okay. Uh, let's go to a call. Joshua in San Francisco has a comment about the Chinese middle class. Hi, Joshua. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. I just got a quick question. As we've seen in Western... Western cultures and Western countries, as the countries develop and the middle class grows, we see manufacturer leaving. 
Um, and since China is a huge, huge manufacturing power in the world, what what's going to happen? Or is there been any talk about what could happen when the middle class outgrows the manufacturing pace? And where does manufacturing go from there? What country do we move to next? And I'll take my call off. Thank you. Uh, okay, great. And, and Damien, let me come to you on this. And you've been writing about China for a long time and labor costs going up for a while. There was so much so-called surplus labor, right, going into Chinese Chinese factories. And then like a lot of countries, the jobs were good, the incomes went up, and so labor costs went up, and people who run these factories or contract with these factories started to look for the next cheaper place to go. What's the situation in China now? Well, you're absolutely right that labor costs have been going up for for the better part of a decade. Uh, so, you know, this started happening around 2010, right after the financial crisis. And so to the question about diversification from China, I think it's it's important to keep in mind that China is already a a, uh, a majority uh, services driven economy in terms of services contribution uh, hmm. to the GDP. So they've already s- sort of started to make that shift. Obviously, it's not enough. Uh, and, you know, when you talk about the middle class, you're obviously talking about a huge rise in consumption. So when that does happen, uh, you will see some shift out of China. But uh, but I think we should keep in mind that China has ha- has some uh, particular strengths in terms of manufacturing that, you know, it's shedding some of the lower end things like shoes and socks to Southeast Asia. You see you see people go to Vietnam, uh, you know, other parts of Southeast Asia, um, but things like lithium ion batteries things like, uh, you know, uh, permanent magnets, EVs, autos. Uh, China is now trying to master those industries and some of which they already have. So they're, they've, they've been able to move up the value, value chain pretty substantially. Uh, China, ha, you know, has always been a producer-oriented economy, and, the, and they still are. It's just a different set of goods. So you can see that Southeast Asia getting some of the lower-end value goods, mm-hmm. uh, while China continues to go up the middle, you know, middle to higher value chains, and that's what's been happening. And I think you can you can have this trend run for another decade or you know two at least uh, if China you know continues to uh, reform its economy the way it intends. As you're saying, moving up the chain and making things that they can that have more value, they can sell for more money and and more more profits. Um, I, I want to go to uh, Peter Martin on this question of China's technology ambitions. Many of our listeners may have heard of Made in China 2025, China which puts on paper Chinese aspirations in some of the areas Damien just talked about. Batteries, semiconductors, artificial intelligence, etc. Coming back to this question of wolf warrior diplomacy and China's assertiveness, right? Does this wolf warrior tone, as it were, also come into play here as far as official Chinese pronouncements on its technology future? I think I think this is an area actually where Chinese leaders tend to be a little bit more low-key. Um, uh, and, and and for a long time, the U.S. and China were really kind of talking past each other here, right? Like the U.S. was very effective at industrial policy and leading um, the economy with the government, uh, you know, during the 40s and 50s, and that that dropped away after the Reagan era. Uh, China uh, kind of took what was a communist command economy. And uh, you know, mixed it with markets and and a lot of ambition, and picked out industries where it thought it should lead, and uh, you know, did that did that for a long time, and it, it was kind of an issue that boiled under the surface. But uh, during the Trump administration, and to some extent in the later Obama administration, it really became a top 
bilateral issue. And the idea was that uh, that China was trying to steal U.S. technology and upgrade itself at the expense of the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep, I understand. Uh, let's go to another caller. We have Mary Lou in Santa Rosa. Hi, Mary Lou. Hi there. Um, I have a question about Chinese aggression across the borders from, from Xinjiang. Um, I was able to visit that region when hiking in the Pamir Mountains. According to any international map, we were hiking in Kyrgyzstan and mm. Tajikistan. However, we had to register with the Chinese police office that was in Kyrgyzstan. They just have moved across the border, and they're building the old Silk Road is now becoming the six-lane superhighway. Mm. They see these markets. And I just want to ask, who's watching that? They're just taking over these countries just, you know, inch by inch. It was appalling. Well, I just want to make sure I understand you uh, here. That is, when you crossed out of Western China, uh, you were still approached or required to go through some kind of a checkpoint, passport check outside of China? Well, interestingly, the checkpoint, which is in the middle of dusty nowhere, the the boundary, they told us it was a province boundary. They had facial recognition software to match my face to my passport. Mm. I doubt mm-hmm. that happens at, at, at province boundaries. It was the international boundary, according to Google Maps or any other map. Yet we drove another 40 miles and went to the Chinese police station to register that we would be trekking for 10 days. Ah, They're just slowly creeping in there and no one's saying a thing about it. Well, I I guess I I should tell you that um, I've never had great success with with Google Maps in China, (laughs) uh, for one. But but Yang Yang Cheng, let me, I guess, go to, to, to you there. Is this a conversation that is increasingly you know, kind of taking on uh, more attention here. This notion, this question that China is increasingly, as the caller asks, uh, mentions, you know, is taking over in, in parts of, uh, particularly in Central Asia. Is this an increasing conversation as China's economic profile gets bigger? Hmm. So I, I would like to tie this back to the issue of Xinjiang, right? Uh, Xinjiang is effectively it's a Han Chinese colony, so we should understand it from a colonial context. Mm. That you mean the majority, co- the majority ethnic group in China, the majority Han Chinese. Yes, and okay. and I'm a, as a Han Chinese person, I feel like um, I'm complicit in my identity, right? Because colonial landscapes are always haunted. Colonial rulers are always nervous. Colonialism and genocide do not have an edge. So this is like I cannot speak specifically to this caller's experience, mm. but this is where we see this this border becoming a contested territory. That is not just a geographical line, but it is also an, an idea, a concept of where the Chinese nation begins and ends and what the Chinese nation means. And so I think, um, and I think it is also important that when we are seeing about the Chinese, whether it's explicit aggression in a security sense or these kinds of um, foreign infrastructure investments or other business deals in, uh, in, in the greater global south, like whether it's the Central Asia or other countries, it's important to recognize the agency of the, of the countries themselves as well, that they are not <laughs> mindless victims or somewhat 
Yeah. On the wear of China uh, of of Chinese uh, of the compromises in some of these deals or some of the actions of the Chinese government that may be aggressive, and it's also important to see what positions um, these global infra, uh, global structures, global systems have made and um, have put themselves in that they have been continuously exploited by Western powers. That uh, they have a, a legitimate reason to be suspicious, and and they also don't necessarily always have a choice in choosing a. Uh, which empire or which great power mm, they mm. partner with? Well, I have to come come back to this uh, Wolf Warrior Two movie, as you mentioned. That it takes place in this, as you know, nameless uh, African country <laughs> where, where this Chinese superhero and the Chinese military is coming to save the people from rebels and American mercenaries. And there's an exchange in the film where the hero and the woman he eventually uh, connects with. They talk about uh, the Americans. Americans are here, and he says, "Well, the Americans—they're so kind of yesterday, right? They're—they're they're good for nothing now here in Africa," <laughs> which goes to what you're talking about: this perception, and to some degree, the reality that who is investing, who is building the bridges and the roads in certain parts of the world? It is uh, uh, Chinese capital, uh, Chinese workers, and and the Chinese footprint that we're seeing there, and the world is trying to. I guess, kind of make sense of this and, and understand this. And in some cases, there will be uh, some pushback there. Um, Yang Yang, let me stay with you. I want to mention Roger's question. Uh, Roger asks, this is on soft diplomacy. He asks, I wonder what your panelists think of China's attempts at soft diplomacy as a parallel strategy with wolf warrior diplomacy. We talked earlier about the notion of soft power and how you know, previous Chinese leaders, Deng Xiaoping, talked about hide your strength, bide your time. And there was this notion of trying to make China more attractive through through what's called soft power. If there is, I guess, too much of this sense of this aggressive wolf warrior diplomacy, do you think there's a cost here to Chinese interests? Hmm. There is well, I I think I think it's uh, important to delineate what we mean by Chinese interests mm. here, right? Um, I I think I think as Peter also mentioned, some of the wolf warrior uh, diplomacy, of course, it has a historical context in terms of of historical trauma and past foreign aggressions. It has a global context in in terms of U.S. or Western hypocrisy. It's it's continued military aggression as well as economic exploitation of the global South that that China has been on the receiving. A receiving end as well as on the on the observing side, and then there is a very importantly a domestic context that a lot of these uh, rhetoric is being used to be projected onto a domestic audience, and in particular towards the Chinese government. And there is a careerist motivation to it as well that a lot of these diplomats who have made very jingoistic comments on on social media or in public forums have been rewarded in their careers, and so in a sense their interests are being served in, in this uh, in, in this process. But then China of course, it's not a monolith. It's um, the Chinese people uh, and the Chinese government or the Chinese Communist Party. None of these entities are are just this amorphous entity that that is uniform. And so, uh, so, so so a lot of cases when when we are having uh, having these issues, there are con there are conflicting interests as well. And and I, I think nationalist and I think the Chinese government is somewhat uh, aware of this as well. There's a wonderful book about by political scientist Jessica Chen Weiss called Powerful Patriots. Mm -hmm. It was of course written before the Xi Jinping era, but about how the Chinese government, um, in a way, also uh, manipulates or directs. Um, 
on a macro level, it is uh, these grassroots uh, displays of nationalism towards Japanese products or uh, or mm-hmm. these territorial disputes, and and it at times serves the Chinese uh, foreign uh, foreign interests or domestic purposes. But at times, the Chinese government has also tempered it down to advance its other objectives. Yeah, I guess sometimes it it allows these this nationalism to to breathe to thrive on the Chinese internet, perhaps when it serves certain interests of the uh, of the Chinese government. Um, Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So um, I want to turn to the issue of anti Asian violence in the United States. In case uh, uh, Peter Martin has had thoughts on the coverage here, uh, listener asks, how is China's government portraying anti Asian violence in the U.S. Does it allow China to point away from its own human rights violations and highlight the ways that living in America is not always ideal? Peter? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that uh, there, are, there are sort of two levels of concern, right? There is a, uh, a, a genuine and deep felt concern about the welfare of the Chinese diaspora that... Uh, a lot of Chinese citizens and, and many people in the Chinese government feel. Uh, there is also, in addition to that, a propaganda value to playing up these kinds of, um, of incidents. And so, um, you know, and the Chinese government will do that when it comes to racial discrimination in the US, when it comes to gun violence, and certainly when it comes to anti-Asian violence. And and the idea is to show that the US isn't this perfect society that uh, that people would like to think, and that it's, it's instead deeply flawed, and that people will be better off sticking with the Chinese system. Um, and, and so I would say there are kind of those two levels going on there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And and we uh, we're going to go briefly to uh, caller Epi Lee, who uh, is talking about Asian hate crimes. Are you there? Yes. Hey. Can you hear me? Yes. Go ahead, please. Briefly. Yeah. I just I, I do feel I'm appreciating this conversation, but as a Chinese American living in the Bay Area with um, okay. hate crimes at an all time high, I think we really need to hold that in this conversation, and it's kind of making me nervous where this conversation is going. Yep, yep, I understand. Uh, fair point. Uh, we unfortunately are uh, approaching the end of our hour. Let me say thank you to Yang Yang Chen, physicist uh, and, and postdoctoral fellow at Yale Law School. Uh, we're coming up again, and this is Forum. Thanks Funds very much. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.